Romans chapter 5. I had wanted last week to get all of verses 12 to 21 preached through. And um, preachers know that after they get from their first point to the second point, that everybody looks at their watch and they do the math. Like, we, we know that. They look at their watch like, okay, this took 22 minutes. It's just first point. But I also know that you who know me know that the introduction usually is longer than any of the points. So, um, but this, this chapter, Romans chapter 5, um, it, it really should affect every Christian's thinking. What do we think about God? What helps me sleep at night? What, what assures me in the midst of great loss and doubt? Um, and so I, I, was, I was trying to at least just get it into four or five sermons instead of seven or eight or however many it's been. But um, just by way of context, Romans starts not where this passage starts. All right, the passage we're going to look at today talks about creation and Adam and Jesus. Now, uh, what Jake failed to say in his prayer that most of you know is that Jake, Jake passed his PCA licensure exam. Uh, that's a big deal. It's a big deal, especially for a young man who has a family, a church, uh, that he shepherds well, uh, youth that he teaches a full-time job, and then takes classes in theology and church history and all of that stuff. So it was a, it was a huge deal. Some of you were able to join us on Tuesday at Shangri-La um, and I, for his examination. And what we had at Shangri-La was just kind of a... Um, part of it was a formality, but it was also a way for the 70 or so pastors and elders in our presbytery to question him and find out what's this guy stand on things and I love it when people from the church come to those meetings uh, because it is really educational and so someone asked me hey what did that dude mean when he asked Jake if he thought Adam and Eve were real people did he ask you that or was it the other guy the other guy asked the other guy do you think Adam and Eve were real people um, someone said why do you ask him that like who would not think they're real people and, and, and that question shows some of the battlegrounds uh, in theology. But specifically, if Adam and Eve weren't real people, then our text here is based on something that's not true. Our text here is based on some kind of a myth. Um, if Adam and Eve weren't real people, then uh, what about all those genealogies? Is, is when do they start becoming real people? So it's a vitally important question, but you will be amazed how many pastors in American evangelicalism will tell you, well, no, it's, it's just one of those origin stories uh, that, that, that it, it gives God glory, but it's not to be taken literally. Um, Adam and Eve, real people. Last week, we looked at verses 12 to 14. Um, and so I'm going to read you that just for some context, because what, what he has said in this letter, he starts out with the problem of humanity, and it is a wonderful way to start out a letter. It's a wonderful way to start out a gospel presentation. Humanity is flawed. It is broken. It is sinful. People hurt themselves, and they hurt others. 
each generation raises another generation of really hopeful college students that are going to go and they're going to fix this. They're going to learn the right things and then they get into their 40s and they get into their 50s and it, they have to fight kind of despair and despondency. We thought we were going to fix this. We thought we were going to change this. We thought we were going to, uh, our foreign policy was going to work wonders over here. And, and we figured, we, you know, we thought we would pass these different laws and it would change the hearts of people. All, all of these things, right? Um, and so that's how he starts. And, and there's a purpose that he starts that way. Because in your gospel presentation, you don't start with what we talked about last week. The federal headship of Adam. You don't start with that. And the reason you don't start with that is because one of the major sins of human beings is to blame shift. And, and so he waits to chapter 5 to explain where did evil come from? Where did sin come from? Why do we need a Savior? The first three chapters is him saying there is no one without an excuse. No, not one. And then in chapter 3, he says, but the righteousness of God now has been revealed. And I explain that as a way of looking at sin as a chasm, the Grand Canyon, and the righteousness of Jesus as Mount Everest. And not, not just my sins need to be removed, but I need righteousness. I need good standing before God. And Jesus is, it, it reveals that in, in comparison and contrast. And then when chapter 5 comes and it says, and especially in verse 8, God demonstrates his love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing. I, I have goosebumps now just saying it. God demonstrates his love for us in this. Not in healing Joanne's cancer. Not in fixing Jim's back. Although he is free to do that and he may do that and do it in different ways. But God demonstrates his love for us in something that is unbelievable, almost unfathomable, that we would dare not ever ask by sending his son as a guilt offering, as a sin offering for us. Right? You think of King, King Charles III. Right? He, he refused to call himself the protector of the faith. Is that what it was? Because he, just, he didn't like the way that was written. And that's fine. He's not the protector of the faith. But we think about what, what, what is he to accomplish? Would any, would any British citizen go to King Charles III and say, uh, will you sacrifice your son for me? What have you done, my loyal subject? Well, I've not been a loyal subject. Actually, I've, I've led rebellion against you all my days. But would you kindly offer your son in my place? So that's Romans 5. Now, what it's leading to in chapter 6, and we often do context looking backwards, but chapter 6 really is how do we then live, right? Just like the catechism. Here was our problem, here is our Redeemer, and here is how we live. Paul does the exact same thing here. Here is our problem, here is our Redeemer, and here is how we live. And so uh, chapters 6, 7, and 8, powerful chapters in Romans. How do we respond uh, to this? So... He introduced this concept, and I put that in the outline. Uh, there, is a, there is an in, in introduction of concepts. Uh, so in verses 12 to 14, he says, Just as sin came in the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. 
even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. The concept is what I talked about just a minute ago, federal headship. Federal headship. God has chosen to deal with human beings through a head, through a federal head. And, and the, again, the best way to think of this would be if King Charles uh, operated uh, as a king used to operate, not, not just as kind of uh, a pretty thing uh, that kind of, you know, it's kind of like a mascot, right? You know, you put the King Charles thing on and all the Brits get happy and they, they dress up and they sing songs and all that, right? But, but, but a federal head that rules you, that makes decisions on your behalf, so much more like a, a dictator. This is what's legal, this is what's not legal. By the way, our country is going to war against this country. Um, God has chosen to deal with humanity through a head. We see it when we elect officials, don't we? We look at an official and we're gonna elect this official because we think that official will best represent our interests, correct? That person's gonna stand uh, and, and go, to, go to DC and is going to represent us. And in that same manner, uh, the apostle and the scriptures explain that when God created man and woman, he put Adam in charge. He gave him specific instructions. It's called the creation mandate. He said, here's what you are to do. And Adam, acting on behalf of all humanity, chose to trust himself, the words of the serpent, and exercising his free will, sinning against the holy God and breaking his commandments. And so he doomed humanity, his progeny, his descendants. He doomed them. It's a sad truth. You may not like it. And again, he doesn't start it this way because it leans toward people blaming God or blaming Adam, which was the very first response, right? The very first response of Eve, the uh, very first response of Adam was, Eve, you gave me her. It's not my fault. It's her fault. Right? And her first response, it's not me. It's the snake you put in here. It's his fault. Right? And so Paul waits to explain it. And the reason he waits to explain it is to show the absolute surpassing greatness of a Christian's federal head. For the Christian's federal head is none other than Jesus Christ. The Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, our Savior and our Mediator. It seems unfair that many would be punished, that many would suffer for the sins of one, but that's what sin does. Sin tells you you're not going to hurt anyone else. It's all about you. What happens with you? And, and no, no, sin lies. And we know that, right? As Jake was praying, good fathers, bad fathers, right? Sin affects the whole. Right? That's why we have a police force. That's why we have jails and judges because the sin of one affects the whole. It is how sin works. You can say you don't like it and you shouldn't like it. You can say it's unfair because it is unfair. But it is what it is. And if we turn a blind eye to it, then we are going to be disappointed over and over again with ourselves, with others, with humanity, with the church. Um, and so that, that's, the, uh, that's one of the concepts. The other concept 
was this union with Christ. And so we will see this union with Christ all throughout the rest of the scripture, all throughout here, we'll see it. And it, it should start to trigger in your mind as you read your Bible, every time it says in Christ, every time the Bible says through Christ. That's, that, is, that is the theological explanation in the scriptures of the concept. A Christian, one of the greatest things that we can cling to is that I have been by faith united with Christ. I have been, as the scriptures say, brought into the beloved son. God looks at a Christian as he looks at his own perfectly righteous holy, pleasing, beautiful son. So we, we got through that concept and then we had to stop. <laughs> uh, and so here we are uh, in verse 15. We will pick up um, from that concept as he fleshes it out in three different ways. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I titled the sermon, From Lesser to Greatest. And uh, we've seen this all through chapter 5, this, this idea of so much more, much more. Uh, four times just in this text, he says much more. Christ abounded for many, verse 17. Much more, verse 20. Abounded all the more. Uh, Jesus is the greater person. It's as if, if, it's as if uh, Paul is writing this letter and he's making this comparison to Adam as a federal head and Jesus as a federal head. And it's almost as if mid-sentence he goes, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Let's not make the mistakes that we often make. We compare God to human beings. We compare Jesus to Adam. Uh, it's almost as if he takes a step back and just says, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Yes, Yes, Adam did act in this way, but Jesus is so much greater. And, and we have to remember that as Christians. Right? We make these comparisons and examples. Um, if you want to go and watch something really that theological geeks find funny, go on YouTube and find uh, these two Irish guys that argue about the Trinity. 
uh, and it's just a just a little animated thing. And he's like, well, the Trinity is like an egg. Oh, no, you've fallen into this. Oh, the Trinity is like water. No, you've fallen into modalism. And, and um, it, it's difficult. Granted, it is difficult. But truthfully, it's God. Right? I, like most men, struggle to understand women. How much more so? To understand God. Right? I mean, is he someone we could figure out in a lifetime? No. What does the hymn say? In vain the firstborn seraph tries, tries to sound the depths of God's love. And it says it's in vain. He's so much greater. And so you get the sense that that's what the apostle is saying. Uh, yes, there are ways that Jesus is the federal head of God's kingdom uh, is similar to Adam, but he is so, so much more. So we're going to look just in these last few verses here um, that he does a greater work, uh, that it has a greater immediate effect, and it has a greater lasting effect. Uh, and my words here are careful. At least I try to be careful for the most time with my words. Um, lesser to greater, we see that. But, but really with Jesus, it's always lesser to greatest period. But then in our text, he uses more. And that is also true. More is a kind of a dynamic word, isn't it? Like you've heard me say this, that the magazine is not called Best Home and Gardens. It's called Better Homes and Gardens. Why? Because if it's best, you're done buying stuff. You're done getting another throw because your house is the best. There's no more flowers that need to be planted. There's nothing that needs to be painted. None of the light fixtures need to be changed. It has finally reached it. It's the best. But with everything that we encounter with Jesus, there's more. It's more. And so the greatest day, right? I mean, the greatest experience, the greatest sunset, you all know I love scissor tails. As I was pulling in to the fence this morning, there was one sitting up there, and it did its little fluttery thing in front of the car. Did God send that scissor tail? Yes, he did. He did. He sent it at that moment to remind a preacher that was wondering who's going to be out for baseball this weekend. Yes, he did. Did that single bird glorify God in the way it flew? Yes, he did. Is there going to be something so much more greater than that stinking bird? Yes, there is. What awaits us is so much more. It abounds more. And so the apostle is wanting to get that across as we compare the federal head of Adam who led all to sin and the federal head of the new kingdom of the God's people, Jesus, so much more from the lesser to the greatest. So we start with the greater work in verse 15. The free gift, it's not like the trespass. Because if many died with one trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift abounded for that one man, Jesus, for many. What did Adam do? What was Adam's work? Adam's work was a trespass. Adam's work was a sin. Right? Again, Anybody who grew up in a family knows sometimes dad makes a decision and everybody suffers. Right? Sometimes mom makes a decision and everybody suffers. And we eat the burned toast and we pretend that it's not burned. 
right? We pretend that's the best birthday cake we've ever, ever had, and we don't talk about our friend Susie's grandma who makes the best banana pudding. No, we don't do that, right? We all suffer together, right? He's saying, what did Adam do? Adam had this work, and his work was a trespass, and all of humanity suffered because of his trespass. That was his work. He was given perfection. He was given everything he possibly needed. He was given a holy and right relationship with God, and he sinned. Adam's greater work was to go against the law. He did it in arrogance. He, he hid. He was self-satisfying. What did Jesus do? Oh my, what did Jesus do? Of course it's a greater work. Of course it's so much more. What did Jesus do? He lived a perfect and holy life, not in a garden of perfection, but in a world that hated him. Against all other kingdoms and forces, he faced a heightened temptation from the evil one. He left what Adam had never experienced and dwelt and lived amongst us. And all the while, knowing, especially if you read the Gospel of Mark, all the while knowing he was headed to a cross for these people. Jesus' work, full of grace and obedience. Arrogance, Adam's work was in arrogance. Jesus' work was in humility. He submits to the Father. He takes the punishment for others' sins. Adam's sins creates punishment and pain for others. Adam, Adam's sin, and, and again, as he represents, and as I said last week, all humanity is going to be in one of two communities. They're going to be in the community of Adam, or they're going to be in the community of Jesus. Adam is going to be their federal head, and if, the, if he is, then you, you, uh, you are tended towards a life of self-satisfaction. Self Christ as the head is self-sacrificing. He gives of himself. He is a greater work because he is a greater um, I've got to look at Hebrews chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. But when the writer to Hebrews is addressing Christians that have been scattered uh, and they've lived under persecution, some have died, they've lost their goods, he, he writes, and this is how he starts his letter. Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers and the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. What is, what is the work of Christ? It is to speak the truth of God. In all of His life, and all of His actions, and all of His gospel, He's saying this is the Word, flesh, and this is what God does. This is how He receives sinners. This is, this is the power of His healing, recreating work. The Son, He says, was appointed heir of all things. He's the head of all things, through whom He also created the world. So think of these works, the Son, just in these first two verses of Hebrew. The Son is there with the Father at the creation of the world. The whole universe that's expanding and accelerating and growing. The Son is with the Father. In the beauty of His mind, He creates a world. And in His divine goodness, He creates creatures that bear His image. That are highest and above all other created beings. Higher than angels created to bear the image of God. He creates this and Adam brings darkness, death, and pollution to it. You know the other greater work? Cleansing it. 
Right? I, 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 I could create something. I'm not a very creative person. But let's say I created a, a painting. It would be awful. <laughs> let's say you created something beautiful. You put it on display. And it bears, it bears, uh, it bears all, of, all of your hopes and dreams. And it's just a picture of who you are. And when that gets broken you try to put it back together. And it's difficult to put back together. In fact, it's a greater work to put something broken and stained back together. They often say that in church planning. They say it's easier to have a baby than to resuscitate the dead. <laughs> it's what they say in church planning. It's easier to have a baby than to bring the dead back to life. And so that's how they recruit church planters sometimes. They're like, yeah, just go have a baby. <laughs> Let that thing die on its own. Right? And so Jesus' greater work, he created it. It was broken and fallen and polluted and stained. And he will bring it back. He will cleanse it and bring it back into a glorified state. Um, verse 3 of Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Are you aware of that right now? That what is holding this universe together is not gravity. It's not the molecular structure. It's not the sun. It is Jesus himself holding everything together. Of course he is a greater man. Of course he is a greater head. What else does he say? After he made purification for sins. That was the work of Jesus. He purified sins. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high the seat of approval, having become superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent. There's an in verse 9, he says, the son, he has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He hated it and he brings about cleansing and justice and renewal. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So when we humanize Jesus, and it is okay to do so, um, it's one of the reasons that the commandments forbid images of him, uh, because everything that we will create will pale in comparison of who he truly is. But when we humanize Jesus as he invites us to, um, we have to be careful that we don't make too much of it, that we don't in some sense recreate Jesus in our image. And it, is t it tends to be how we, 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 we make errors on that side. Um, and then he ends up letting us down. All right, that's the, greater, that's the greater work. Secondly, he has a greater immediate effect. So there's an immediate effect to Jesus' work. And it is, again, much greater. Verse 15, the free gift isn't like the trespass, because many died to the trespass. Much more has the grace of God and the free gift abounded for many. Free gift isn't like the result of one man's sins, for judgment followed that. The free gift brings justification. Justification has been explained in those first 11 verses. Go back and look at it. Uh, those sermons I entitled, The Bundles of Justification. It is all that a Christian has, receives, uh, can claim because they've been justified. But in verse 17, one man's trespass, death reigned. How much more will those who receive his grace, the gift of righteousness, reign? 
All right, so the greater immediate effect, Adam's effect, many and all died. In Jesus' effect, many are given life. Adam's effect, immediate judgment, right? Immediate judgment, kicked out of the garden, right? And, and it's, it's a horrific downfall, this immediate, immediate effect of Adam's sin. Uh, Jesus' immediate effect, an abundance of grace and righteousness. Adam's immediate effect, death reigns. Jesus' immediate effect, life reigns. It's a huge point. The, the apostle, the same apostle writing this letter, writes to the church in Ephesus. In chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. In Colossians 2, he, he uh, dis, I forgot, disarmed, <laughs> can't read my own writing, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities put them to open shame by triumphing over them in death. And Jesus did not just make redemption possible. He accomplished redemption. It was certain. Didn't just hope that maybe some people would look at him as an example and follow. No, he won their redemption. Now, we will operate under a federal head. It's quite common for U.S. citizens to make themselves their own federal head. And, and in so doing, often, it's even worse than that. It becomes our feelings. I feel this. I think this. Um, and, and I have to tell you this because that, that thought and that acceptance of what I feel equals truth has, has really done a devastating work, not just in our culture, not just in humanity, but in our churches. And so as a Christian, when you say, I surrender my life to Jesus Christ, you are, you are in effect saying, and you should be saying, and you should know this well, that you are saying, I am no longer the head of my life. I am no longer... I am no longer the one who sets my destiny. I am no longer the one that judges what is right and good for me. And it's not my dad. It is Jesus. He is the head who defines me. He is the king who rules me. He is the judge who guides me. He sends his spirit to convict me I follow him even when it doesn't feel right I submit to him even if at that moment it seems the apple is so pleasing and will give me wisdom and everyone else has taken a bite of it Jesus is our head any other head be it yourself be it a combination of bosses and coaches and parents and government, be it any other combination, any other king will bring about the same results. It will lead you in sin, and that sin will not just affect you, it will affect others. You know, when I argue theology, that is why one of my driving arguments is what part of theology gives God the most glory? What part of our theology encourages me to rest upon him more than myself. And I choose that one. 
Lastly, he has a greater lasting effect. There was an immediate effect of Adam. There was an immediate effect of Jesus. Uh, That's why after his death, you read and it's reported that the graves opened, (laughs) that uh, bodies were resurrected and they met in the holy city. Uh, 500 people witnessing to these things. It was an, an immediate effect, right? Immediate effect in the temple, uh, the, the, the veils of the curtain were torn open. Uh, no longer did we need to go through a priest. We had become a kingdom of priests, but there is also a lasting effect. That's really good to know that. You know, this, this, this area of theology is where the security of all believers belongs. This area of theology is where sanctification belongs. We become more and more like Jesus. This area of theology and this promise and this work of Jesus is where glorification belongs. We will be like him. We will see him as he is. This is where all of this belongs. In verse 18 to 21, it's it's giving us all of that theology wrapped in just these few verses. One trespass led to condemnation. One act leads to justification and life. For all men. All right, I, I know I'm running out of time again, but justification, I'm declared right before God. In the courtroom of God, my case is settled. But then it goes on to say that, for as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. They became sinners. I said last week, uh, a person does not go to hell because of Adam's sin. A person goes to hell because of their own sin, their own account before God. It's clear throughout Scripture, the soul that sins will die. The son will not be punished for the sins of the father. But you're made sinners. And that one sin led humanity on a path of sin. But then he says, but by one man's obedience... The many will be made righteous. Righteousness made justification declared. These key words will be made. Oh, brothers and sisters, we can take rest and comfort in this work of Christ, our head. His work guarantees that the many will be made righteous. So we live as as human beings now on this side of our death, on this side of his return. We live being declared one thing. I'm called and I'm treated as a righteous child of God. But we live with a hope that I will become an actual righteous person. And I said this before, that's great news for both the optimist and the pessimist. The pessimist that sees the wrong in everything and can't hope, you're, 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 you're somewhat right. Humanity will not become what is fully intended to become until that day. But the optimist, what I long and what I desire and what I hope and what I look forward to will become that in one day. And in conclusion, I put there the positive side of unfairness. Um, I'm just go over this briefly with you. Last week when we talked about the federal head, we talked about how it just seems unfair and sin is unfair. But there's also a beautiful side to God's unfairness. Right? There's just a beautiful side to it. It is not fair for any human being who has sinned against the holy God to be declared righteous, to be made righteous. 
It is absolutely not fair for the holy, infinite God to give his perfect, obedient son on my behalf. It is not fair. And yet that's what the gospel is. Jesus' act of total unfairness comes to the benefit of those who need it most. He says, as Isaiah says, let's reason together, brothers and sisters. 5.8 demonstrates his love for us and why we were sinners. It has a greater lasting effect. One day, the effect of Adam's sin and humanity's sin will be wiped away. The promise of the future is there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And God's dwelling will be among his people. There will not need to be a son for that earth because God himself will be the son. That's the lasting effect. This morning, when you take the elements, when you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're making a proclamation to those here, to yourself, and to the world. I am under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. My lot is bound up in him. As I take his body, by faith I believe that the active righteousness of Christ, the things that he did, the obedience, the pure record that he had before the Father, I have now received by faith. It belongs to me. It is his free gift, and I have received it. He is the one I stand under. As you drink the cup, you're saying, my federal head gave his blood, and I am the recipient of that. My king acted on behalf of me, not when I was good, not when I was kind, not when I was in the best worship mood I've ever been in. No, he did that while I was still a sinner. My federal head gave his blood for me, and I receive it by faith, and I rest upon it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And oh Lord, I know that I need it pounded in my head over and over and over again. Barely a week goes by where I just think I'm not worthy for this table. I'm the least to be up here and preach your grace for I have not offered it to others and I have not lived in it myself. And yet how much more is it needed as we walk with you, as we wrestle, as we strive to live a life that glorifies you. How much more powerful is your body and blood to those of us who have walked with you for many years and those who have just started. Oh, Father, may we be willing to live and die for Christ alone. May we, Heavenly Father, be gracious to one another, be grateful to you. May our striving for a righteous and a just life with one another, may it not be to somehow fulfill what Jesus hasn't done, but Father, because we love our King. There's nothing more He could have done to show His love for us, His wisdom for us, His knowledge of us. Oh, may we take and eat with a renewed vigor to obey. 
We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.